the teachings of Jesus were really quite radical. The practice of the early church was quite radical. As a matter of fact, the book of Acts says they turned the world upside down for Christ. And the practice of the early restoration movement, the heritage of this church, was also quite radical. And yet, if we're really honest, I think most of us would have to admit that with some wonderful exceptions, there's really very little radical about the modern-day church here in America. If you have your Bible, open it to Luke chapter 14 this morning, where Jesus is getting closer and closer to Calvary. Up until now, there have been huge crowds that have been following after Jesus, some coming for a free meal, some coming to witness one of his spectacular miracles. But Jesus is just about to teach the crowds and preach the crowds away. Because here in Luke 14, Jesus is going to talk about the cost of discipleship. And the subject of the cost of discipleship was not a popular subject then. It's certainly still not a popular subject to this day. Did you ever notice that when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he didn't tell the church to go into all the world and make converts? No, Jesus said, go into all the world and make what? Disciples. Now, the disciple, by definition, must first be converted, but there's more to being a disciple than just being converted. For a disciple is one who listens to, follows, and obeys his or her master and teacher. And as Christians, our master and teacher is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus has given us a rather radical agenda of discipleship. Some of you may be familiar with a book, Radical, written by David Platt. And uh, David points out that along the way, we've missed what's radical about following Jesus, and we've replaced it oftentimes with what is comfortable. Now, there's nothing wrong with the word comfortable or being comfortable as long as it doesn't prevent us from doing what God has told us to do. But Platt suggests that often it has kept us from doing what God would have us to do. He suggests that we often settle for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of the gospel is about abandoning ourselves. He says we've twisted the Jesus of the Bible into a nice middle-class Jesus, a Jesus who really doesn't mind materialism, a Jesus who would never ask us to give away everything we have, a Jesus who's just fine with nominal devotion that doesn't infringe on our comforts, a Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. Now, his analysis might sound harsh, but as one who uh, travels a great deal and gets around and is a student of the church in America today, I suggest that he's pretty much right on. My wife Jan and I love going to Wyoming. Our very favorite spot in the whole world is um, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. How many of you have ever been there? Let me see your hands. A number of you have, and you can join me in testifying. It's one of the most beautiful places on the face of planet Earth. Our children grew up uh, going there on vacation every couple of years, and we've hiked all the trails of the Tetons, hiked the trails of the um, Bridger National Forest that adjoins it. I guess that's why I was especially interested in an article I saw in a magazine a couple of years ago. It was about the comment cards that are turned into the ranger stations there at the park. It was a lengthy article, and it gave a lot of the comments, but let me just share a couple of them with you this morning. Uh, one person <clears throat> wrote, the trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. <laughs> That's kind of tough to do in the mountains, folks. It really is. 
And uh, there were other cards that talked about the spiders and the spider webs, and, and uh, someone complained about the coyotes keeping them up the night before and so forth. But this is my favorite comment. One person wrote, there are too many rocks in these mountains. <laughs> yeah, that's why they call them Rocky Mountains, uh, by the way. But all those comments and others I could read suggest that these people really didn't understand what it means to hang out in a wilderness area. No, they were looking for something convenient. They were looking for something comfortable. And I wonder, have we not sometimes done the same thing with the church? We want to follow Jesus. We want to be saved. We want to go to heaven. But, but sometimes we, we want to set the terms ourselves. Let's hear what Jesus has to say. Luke chapter 14 beginning with verse 25, a large crowd was following Jesus. Now, as I said, that's just about to change. But a large crowd was following Jesus, and he turned around and he said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, He'll send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. And so you cannot become my disciple. Verse 33, you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. <laughs> really, Jesus? That sounds awfully radical. I preach in a different church every weekend, and I don't preach the, sermon, the same sermon every weekend, but I do preach on this basic theme of radical discipleship because that's what the conference is about this particular fall. And a couple of weeks ago, I had a lady come up to me after one of the earlier services at a multiple service church like this, and, and she said, uh, Sir, that was a very judgmental sermon. <laughs> to which I responded, Well, take it up with Jesus, you know, because it's His words, not mine. And I want you to know, I could, I could preach a more entertaining sermon this morning and a more people-pleasing sermon this morning, but that's not what I believe God would have me to do. For in these verses, Jesus tells us the things that he wants, no, more than once, the things that he demands from us if we would be his disciples. For instance, he wants our love. There in verse 26, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Does that bother you? Does that shock you to hear Jesus talk about hating mom and dad and brother and sister? You say, well, John, isn't it true that Jesus elsewhere said we're supposed to love everyone, even our enemies? Yes, that's true. But you see, Jesus often taught using figures of speech. He used metaphors, he used similes, he used parables. But here he's using what we know as hyperbole, which is a, an intentional exaggeration in order to emphasize a point. Ladies, it's what you use on your husbands when you say, I've told you a million times to put the toilet seat down. You haven't told him a million times, maybe a hundred, but not a million. You just want to make your point. And the point is that your love for Jesus should be so powerful that in comparison it seems as if you hate everyone else. <clears throat> Parenthesis, another sermon for another day. When you love Jesus most, 
You love your family best. Did you know that? But again, that's another sermon for another day. It's also true that sometimes your love for Jesus will alienate you from others, even your own family. Jesus said in Matthew 10, don't imagine that I came to bring peace on the earth. I came not to bring peace but a sword. I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. You know, I've seen that. I've seen that a number of times to be true. Uh, for several years, my wife Jan and I traveled in crusade evangelism all across the country. And I remember one particular crusade in northwestern uh, Missouri. A young lady about 17, 18 years of age came to give her life to Christ. Was baptized into Christ and then went home to a very ungodly home. Father was a, a drunkard, probably an alcoholic. And mom wanted nothing to do with the church. And when she told her parents what she had done in giving her life to Christ, her dad took out a belt and he beat her black and blue all over. And then he told her, go to your room, get your things, and get out of here. You're no longer welcome in my house. You're no longer my daughter. And that very night that she gave her life to Christ, she had to seek refuge in the home of a Christian family in the church. I was in Ghana a few years ago at a, at a preacher's conference. There were preachers there from all over the country of Ghana. Now, northern Ghana is predominantly Muslim. And I met an evangelist from northern Ghana. Oh, he was, uh, he was a guy that was just so excited about Jesus. And I heard stories of how he was winning thousands of people to Christ. I was even more impressed when I learned his story because, you see, he was born the son of a Muslim imam. But when he had grown to adulthood, could make decisions on his own, he had been exposed to the gospel, he had studied Christianity, and he'd embraced Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And from that day on, he had been a firebrand for Jesus, winning thousands and thousands to Jesus. However, his father was so distressed by his son's conversion that he had his son's family's well poisoned with the intention of killing his own son and killing his son's family. He didn't succeed in killing his son or his son's family. He did succeed in killing his five-year-old grandson. Now, can you imagine that? I mean, it's hard for us in America to imagine such things as that. And yet the fact of the matter is, if you truly follow Jesus, if you are truly the radical disciple that Jesus talks about here, you won't have to look for people to oppose you or people to ridicule you. They will find you, and sometimes they'll be your own family members. And let's go on. Jesus not only wants your love, Jesus wants your life. <laughs> there in verse 27, he says, If you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. He made it even clearer in Matthew 16 when he said, If any one of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. He added, If you want to hang on to your life, you will lose it, but if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Take up your cross, Jesus said. Many Christians are confused about what it means to take up our cross, though. Some confuse it with a physical illness. Some confuse it with a bad marriage. Some confuse it with a difficult job. No, the cross represents death. In this case, death to self. The Apostle Paul understood what it means to take up your cross. Uh, in the book of Galatians, on three different occasions, he makes incredible statements that show that he understood what taking up the cross means. Galatians 2 and verse 20, he says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. See, Paul got it. Or again, in Galatians 5, 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Paul understood. And my favorite, Galatians 6 and verse 14, 
As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified, and the world's interest in me has also died. That's why in that wonderful sixth chapter of the book of Romans, where he talks about dying to sin and being buried in Christian baptism and raised to walk in newness of life, uh, baptism is emblematic of the fact that we are dying to the old life. We're becoming a new man in Christ as His Holy Spirit comes to indwell us and transform us from the inside out. This uh, past January, I was on a mission trip, <clears throat> first to Europe, uh, Italy in particular, for a group of European missionaries, and then on down to India, where I've worked often over the years with missionaries there and to speak for the All India Christian Convention. But I had a long layover in Milan, Italy along the way, and I always carry books along to read, and I had the book Bonhoeffer by Eric Metaxas, a great biography of the Christian martyr of World War II days, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't have the time to tell you his whole story, but I will tell you this. Bonhoeffer was executed near the end of the war, but he was executed not just because he opposed Hitler, not just because he opposed Nazism, but perhaps even more significantly, he ended up being executed because he opposed the corrupt, compromising church in Germany of his day. The church that went along to get along. You know what I'm talking about. I think sometimes the church in America today is guilty of the same thing. We just go with the flow of our culture anyway. I was so moved by reading his biography that I went back home and I pulled down off of my bookshelf in my library some of the books that I'd read years before that were written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of them in particular, The Cost of Discipleship, and I reread those books. Here's one quote I want to live, uh, leave with you from, uh, from The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer wrote, The cross is laid on every Christian. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. I like this next statement. He says, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And then this powerful statement, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer got it. Well, there's a third thing here. Jesus also wants our, our livelihood uh, verses 28 through 30, Jesus presents an image of a man that's building a tower, but before he builds it, he must first count the cost to see if he has enough resources to finish it. Now, please understand, he's talking here about the cost of discipleship, not the cost of salvation. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, we're told in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Praise God for that marvelous gift. There's nothing you or I can do to earn our salvation. But oftentimes we stop reading too soon. We love Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, but verse 10 goes on to say, For we, we who are saved by grace, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus paid it all for our salvation. There's nothing I can add to that. But he's talking here about the cost of radical discipleship, the cost of total commitment. It's about finishing well because the man in the story was not able to finish well. Jesus says everyone would look at the incomplete project and they would make fun of him because he didn't finish. And folks, I don't want to be like him in the spiritual realm and be a spiritual dropout to be one who fizzles and fails when Jesus said, he that endures to the end shall be saved. The pages of the Bible are littered with great men, uh, are littered with the stories of men and women uh, who didn't finish well. 
And the same thing is true in the Christian world today. You know it. I know it. John Stott calls it the scandal of Christendom. Nominal Christianity in which people cover themselves with a thin veneer of Christianity. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Those are pretty powerful words too, aren't they? Quite frankly, they make me a little bit uncomfortable. But the good news is that none of us are finished yet. The finish line is still ahead. One more thing. Jesus wants our loss. Verses 31 through 33, he tells a story about two kings. One is greatly outnumbered in his forces. And so he wisely seeks peace with the other king before the battle can begin. The whole idea of the story is one of surrender. Because the one that is outmanned surrenders to the greater. And God, who is all-powerful and all-loving, is the one to whom we need to surrender our lives. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that we cannot be his disciple unless we're willing to give up control of our life. And I know that's very difficult for many of us to do. I heard his story, and I'll only give you the bare details of the story of a lifeguard on an Atlantic beach, saw a man struggling out in the surf, rushed to the edge of the surf, ready to go to his aid. But he simply stood in the surf, and people gathered around and began to criticize the lifeguard. Why don't you go? Save the man. He's going to drown. Still, the lifeguard stood there, waded out a little further into the surf. Finally, when it looked like the man was going to go down for the proverbial last time, the lifeguard swam out with strong strokes, put his arm around the man's torso, pulled him back to the shore, and both legs lost on the beach. The crowd that gathered around you think would have hailed the lifeguard as a hero, but instead of that, they were very critical of him. Why did you wait so long? The man could have drowned. And finally, when the crowd had quieted down, it was then that the lifeguard responded and said, you don't understand. This man is much larger than I am, probably more strong than I am. And he was kicking and thrashing about so violently that had I gone to his aid sooner, we probably both would have drowned. It was only when he finally gave up that I knew I could go and save him. Now that story is a wonderful parable with all sorts of applications. It's a lesson in regard to salvation. As long as we think we're strong enough to save ourselves, we won't surrender to Jesus. Uh, It's only when we realize that we're hopelessly and helplessly lost that we then allow Jesus to come and rescue us. But not only is surrender the basis of our salvation, it's the core of radical discipleship. Coming to the place where I say, Jesus, I give up. I give you total control of my life, my possessions, who I am, who I ever hope to be. I surrender. You know, in the Bible, it sometimes talks about raising our hands in worship. I know a lot of people aren't comfortable with that. That's all right, but it is biblical, both Old and New Testament. And I think the reason for that is simply because raising one's hands in worship has always been, the raising of hands, I should say, has always been a sign of what? Surrender. I give up. I give up. And I wonder this morning if you've ever come to the place where to Jesus, you said, Jesus, I give up. I mean, I surrender all. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll, I'll do what you want me to do. I'll be what you want me to be. No matter what it costs, Jesus, I will follow you. What does all this have to do with missions? Well, business as usual will not win the world of Christ. It will take radical discipleship. Let me close with a reading. I, I wish I were responsible for it. I'm not. I don't know the author. But this man wrote these powerful words. I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. 
I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by His presence, lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. No, I won't give up, shut up, let up, or burn up until I'm preached up, prayed up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till I'll know, and work until he stops me. And when he comes to get his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me, for I am his and he is mine. Now, what about you? <laughs> Indeed, what about you? May I suggest that when we all have the passion reflected in those words and the commitment to being the radical disciples that Jesus has called us to be, we'll take this world for Christ. If you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple, said Jesus. But he also said, if you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it anyway. But if you give up your life for his sake, you'll save it. Pray with me, Father. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher today. Take these words of Jesus. Take, Father, our teaching time together this morning. And convict us, Father, in those areas where we need to be convicted. Whatever the changes, whatever the changes be that need to take place, that they would indeed take place. And the Father, we would be radical disciples, committed to go, to tell, to pray, to give, until the whole world knows. In Jesus' name, amen.